Today we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You guys are like, are we at a wedding? No, we're not. Uh, As is the tradition of our church, would you please stand as we read the 13th chapter? Paul writes to the church in Corinth, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Thank you. You may be seated. In the Renaissance, there were these poet musicians out of France known as troubadours and trouvères. And... They would go around from town to town singing songs that they, or music that they put to their poetry. Now, as is the case today, the primary subject matter of their poetry was love. And so they would go to these towns and sing about you know, women that they loved. Now, it's, the, the subject is a sort of specific type of love. It's a love... Um, emotion, emotional love, but more specifically, this idea of pining or loving someone that you cannot attain. So it's a, a tragic sort of love. We see this displayed really well in the works of Shakespeare, especially in Romeo and Juliet, right? You have these two people, there's this impediment that does not allow them to be together. Uh, whatever it is, these stories always have this. There's this impediment, this insurmountable insurmountable obstacle that does not allow these these two lovers to become a couple or to realize their love for each other and so in romeo and juliet they say well life's not worth living without it so they end their lives right now when we read this we say that's great art and it's you know it's fun to read it's good to read you um it strikes something within you we think of all these uh, wonderful stories, and it's great. But as soon as that type of idea becomes reality, our feet leave this idea of literature and art, and we're firmly planted in reality, and all we can say is this really bites. I want to say that the type of love that we often talk about is this sort of love, an emotional love. But this is not 
the type of love that Paul is talking about here. We're going to see that the type of love Paul's talking about is a much higher love, and indeed the ultimate and even, I would say, original form of love that is steadfast, unmoving, and is not contingent or threatened by the actions of people. A couple things I think we need to know about the context of this is the church in Corinth had a few issues, to put it lightly. In chapters 12 and 14, so the two chapters that bookend this passage, Paul is addressing this unhealthy obsession that the church has with spiritual gifts. And they are really obsessed with it. Even to the point of elevating certain people above others because of the types of gifts they have. Now, they were really, really obsessed with the gifts of tongues. Now, what Paul gets at in, in the first three verses is that. And later on, he's going to address another issue that the church of Corinth has, and that is this idea of purity concerning love and purity, so a physical love. And we'll see that a little later on in this chapter. But these first few verses, Paul opens up by basically saying, if I have all these gifts, if I understand all these things, if I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, then it's worth nothing. So I would maybe say it this way. Paul is talking about motivation. What is the motivation for these spiritual gifts? Paul's not saying these gifts are bad, but he is talking about how we wield these gifts. What motivates us? To use these gifts. So a first point I want to make is a Christ follower should be motivated by love. Period. (laughs) I mean, you could really just end this section like that, but I don't want to. (laughs) Now, if you if you don't think this is important, I would point you to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35. Very famous verse. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for me. So it's so important that Jesus says it's not by your spiritual gifts. It's not even by how well you communicate doctrine. What is it that ultimately tells others that you're a disciple of Christ? It's love and a very specific type of love. This type of love that Paul goes on to define for us a little later. I think you could also say this, that motivation to use gifts is more important than the actual gifts themselves. It's not about so much the gift. God's the one that gives the gifts anyway. What God cares about is the motivation behind the gifts. How do we use those gifts? Now, I want to really try and crystallize this in our mind by talking about one of the most wonderful attributes of God. God is motivated by love. So those who follow his son will be too. Should be, I would say maybe even will be. It should definitely happen that way. Now, the Bible says that love is not just a thing God does or shows to people he likes. He's not like, I like curly-haired people, straight-haired people. You know, I don't like you quite as much. It's not how God works. God is love. That's an emphatic statement. 
This, is, this means that it's an essential character trait of who God is. In the, John's first epistle, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, listen to what he says about this. It can't be put any plainer or clearer. Beloved, let us, one another, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, I want to say before I move on that I just want to acknowledge this church and this church body. Because I've seen this type of love demonstrated time and time again. I've seen members of this body going through lots of suffering and pain. And in the midst of their own suffering and pain, where it's completely understandable that we would expect those people to be inwardly focused, I see them focused on other people. And building other people up. I know that others in this body have experienced that. And I just want to say, that is the type of love that this passage is talking about. And thank you for allowing me to experience that. And others, I'm sure, would thank you as well. Now today, we're not in the same context, but there are a lot of similarities to churches today and the church in Corinth. And I think we can fall into the same trap of focus, putting our focus in the wrong place. Um, I would call it putting the cart before the horse. Now, we can sound right. We can sound spiritual. We can have God on our lips, but we can be dead wrong. Just because we sound pious or someone sounds pious doesn't mean that you're actually doing things in the right way. At least your motivation may be wrong. We can end up working for man and not God, whether we realize it or not. Jesus has a fun encounter with some Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 15. And here, these uh, holy rollers are really upset with his disciples because they're eating without washing their hands. Now, that's not like sanitary. It's ceremonial washing. Okay? And Jesus responds to them with this. Fifth, uh, chapter 15 of Matthew, verse 3. He says, And he answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother... What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. In a similar way, we can fall into this trap By focusing on the wrong things. Um, One way I see this sort of played out is I, I, I think I see churches that really talk a lot about God's glory. 
spreading his name and fame. They even hold up his word very, very highly. But something interesting happens. Sometimes, even when that sort of thing is being espoused, what you'll find is that it's cold. I don't mean the air conditioner is too high. I mean, it's not compassionate. You wonder, do you love God and people, or do you love God at the expense of people? And I want to say that that should never, ever be the case. In fact, I would say this. The Bible does not give us that option. It doesn't say, if you have to do one, you better love God. God doesn't say that's a possibility. Now, I think we, some people fall into this trap when you consider the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment uh, is first stated in Deuteronomy, and then Jesus states it in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and in Luke 10. He says, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything that you are. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these, all the other commandments rest. This is not a statement of mutual exclusion. Jesus is not saying that if you have to choose one, if you find yourself in like a really weird scenario where you know, someone's threatening your life and say, either choose God or man, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is he's talking about a causal relationship. If you love God... You will love man. That's what he's saying. God's love is always for people. And it's for their ultimate good. So we must be careful not to fall into this either-or conundrum. This essentially communicates that God reigns in our hearts at the expense of people. Love for God and love for people go together. Now, John makes this clear once again. Chapter 4 of 1 John, another great love chapter of the Bible. He says um, in verse 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot, or who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment, did you catch that? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Clearly, John does not see the greatest commandment as this exclusive thing. He just says, this commandment we have, if you love God, you must also love your brother. So it's cause and effect. Now, after Paul talks about motivation... Just in case we needed clarification, he says, I'm not talking about emotional love. Let me define this type of love that I'm talking about. And so, in the great passage of scripture that is used at everybody's wedding, although seldom really listened to, unfortunately, this is what Paul says. He starts off by saying what love is. He says it's patient and it's kind. Then he contrasts that with a bunch of things love isn't. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not boastful. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not selfish. It doesn't insist in its own way. 
These first uh, verses in this little section, I think, are saying something that we often don't think about in our culture. And that is, God actually does care the way that we wield our truth. Paul's about to say that love rejoices in the truth. God just doesn't want us telling truth. He wants us telling truth in the right way. Now, it's, it's, there's this weird thing that happens today. You, I'm sure you guys have seen it, where somebody says something that's true, but they're a real jerk about it. And then what everybody says is, well, he's just telling it like it is. As if to say, well, as long as he's telling the truth, or as long as she's telling the truth, if they're a jerk about it, it doesn't matter. This doesn't really leave us that option either. You can't say love is kind. You can't say it's not arrogant or boastful. It's not rude. And then say that that's okay. God cares about the way that we communicate truth. Now let's look at verse 6. I love this verse because on the one hand, it helps me to frame the culture we live in really well, but it also challenges me just immensely. And that is, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I know you heard me, but I'm going to say it again. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I want us to really think about what that means. And I want us to think about it with doing a little thought exercise. A big lie of sin, but not a truth of love, is this. That if I have feelings of want or desire or romance or physical attraction, it must be right because I want it. Uh, in the youth group, we talk about this a lot. We call this the Disney right, sort of love. Right? Just follow your heart, sing about it, and you know, everything's hunky-dory. <laughs> I want us to really think about where this leads, though. Um, and as Christians, give us a simple test to see if we're rejoicing in the truth. So here it is. Ask yourself three questions. If you're ever faced with an, um, a decision, should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I say this? Should I not say it? I give, you three, I give you three questions that you can ask yourself. One, does the Bible say it's sin? Once you establish that, move on to the next one. Do I agree with the Bible? Once you've established that, move on to the next one. Do I seek to live in accordance to what the Bible says? If the answer to your question is, does the Bible say it's wrong? And does the Bible say it's sin? And you say, no, it's not. Then guess what? You're not rejoicing in the truth. We're not rejoicing in the truth. Sorry, I don't mean to. I'm sounding accusatory. I'm like, you, you, you. We are not rejoicing in the truth. Now, if we realize that the Bible is saying it's sin, and we even say, yeah, I agree, that is sin. But we say, we do it anyway. We're not rejoicing in the truth. I don't know how often we think about the fact that abstinence, abstaining from sin, is inseparable from the idea of love. And I, I, hope, I hope I can point out clearly why that's the case. And I want to ask that. Why is that the case? Why does God care? Why does God give all us these rules? I mean, he has a lot of them. 
Right? In the Old Testament, there's over 600 in the law. Is it not common to see these sort of accusations put towards God, that God is unfair, he's, he's mean, he uh, rules like a draconian dictator, he says, do this or I don't love you? I want to try to correct that notion. I want to try to answer the question, why does God say not to be sexually immoral or gluttons or greedy? Why does he say to be generous, forgiving, kind, etc.? Simply put, it's because sin hurts. Why does God give us commands? It's because love cannot rejoice in wrong. God is love and wrong always hurts people. As is true with the most profound things in our existence, sometimes it's so simple. These relationships are so simple. And unfortunately, I fear, in fact, I would say I know, that society today, and actually humanity and all of history, have completely misunderstood the heart of God. God wants us to live the way he designed He wants us to live the way he designed us because it is what is best for us. There's something really ironic that happens. We often have this um, reaction against God when we're confronted with our sin to fight God on that. And to even start saying things like, um, no, it's not really wrong. We start in on justification. And yet, in the same breath, we'll see some sort of tragedy of history or in our current culture, and we ask what question? Where is God? I want to tell you something really simple. If we were following God's commandments, we wouldn't ever be asking that question. Have you thought about that? I want to give you a little bit of an illustration. We are in the midst of a sort of, I mean, it's been going on for decades, a sexual revolution. It's nothing new. It's not like America's, for the first time, started experimenting with this stuff. This stuff is as old as humanity itself. Paul addresses some of these very same issues in this letter. But I want you to think about something. We see very clearly our society wanting what they call sexual freedom. Freedom to do what they want, when they want, with who they want. It's so among us that you can't escape it. I want us to think about something. I think we all know that one of the greatest tragedies of the last hundred years or so is some of the terrible diseases that have come into the human existence and have killed millions of people. The big one that I think we all think of is AIDS. How many millions of people, millions of children, were born with this disease, not knowing... Who even was responsible for bringing this into the human existence? I want to tell you something. It wasn't God. It was people. And it got into human life by people not obeying God's commands. There's a reason God says man, woman for a lifetime. And that's it. It's for the family. And it's for the betterment of our entire species. Isn't it ironic 
that we can lament God's strict rules and at the same time lament these tragedies that are caused by us not obeying God's rules. Do you see why his commandments are loving? It's very sad that humanity has literally hated God because of his love. His rules are loving because they tell us the truth. Sin always harms. As people called to represent God, we should feel wonderfully equipped to know that God's truth is not religious dogma. They're not just rules, but they're desperately needed and freely offered medicine to the disease of lust, greed, selfishness, and wrong ideas of love. Now, After Paul defines love, in these terms, he says, love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. To sum up what this means, I would say that Paul's telling us, love's not about you or me, it's about the other person. Right? This type of love, if I'm to show it, can't be focused on me. It has to be focused on others. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. The first part of this, bears and cover, uh, bears could also be translated cover. And the verse I think of is, love covers a multitude of sins. We love others by bearing with their sin. We're not self-righteous. We're patient with them. Two, Believes We're not conspiracy theorists. We believe the best about people, especially in our church family. We're not exhausting ourselves gossiping about people. Charles Spurgeon said he wishes more Christians would exhaust themselves telling the laurels and positive things about their fellow brothers and sisters. Going door to door saying, did you hear the great obedience that so-and-so had? Instead of saying, hey, did you hear you know, what happened? Last Tuesday. We're not supposed to be naive. That's not what this is saying. But our first response shouldn't be that of condemnation or gossip. We should believe the best about those in our church family. Love hopes. This one hurts me because I'm a pessimist. Love is not pessimistic. I like to say I'm a realist, but really I'm just a pessimist. Love is not pessimistic. Why isn't it pessimistic? Because our hope is in the promises of God. And God's promises are sure. So love hopes. And love endures. This doesn't just mean that we endure with each other through hard times and difficult things. Although that's true. One thing we kind of don't like to think about maybe is... And Paul says this in chapter 12. He says, if one part of the body is honored, the rest of the body rejoices with that member. So there is no room for um, jealousy because someone in the body has been recognized for their obedience. We should celebrate with them. Right? That one hurt me too because I'm, I'm a pretty prideful person. Um. But it, it, it's so true. 
We should encourage others as they're receiving uh, due recognition. It's good for us to do that. Now, Paul ends this section, this chapter, with what I've called the eternal nature of love or the supremacy of love. Paul says that um, basically gifts will end starting in, um, I'm sorry, let me go back to uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul says that everything will pass away eventually. Prophecies, gifts of tongues. Um, we know partly right now, but we don't see clearly. We only know part of what's going on. He says that now I see in a mirror dimly, but eventually I will see clearly. And he talks about, he gives this analogy of as a child, he thought like a child, and then he reasoned like a child. And as adults, he put away those things. What Paul is saying is that as a child, you don't see things as clearly as you do when you become an adult. What Paul is getting at, you see in verse 13. He says, when you boil down everything, when you boil down the Christian life, what comes to the surface is this, faith, hope, and love. But then he says the greatest of these is love. And that might seem strange to us because faith is really important. <laughs> right? That's how we receive salvation. That's how Abraham's righteousness was credited to him, was by faith. But there's an amazing truth about this. Why is Paul saying this? Remember, he's talking about what we see now versus eternity. We see now in part, but we will eventually see clearly. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Paul is saying that in eternity, we won't need faith. Because we'll be seeing it all. God will be in front of us. We won't need hope because all the promises of God will be made realized. But guess what? Love will remain. This means God is eternal. He is love. This is an essential character attribute of God. This means that before anything was created, love existed. Love exists now, and after all things are made right, and God consecrates everything, and judgment is over, love will remain. Now, in conclusion, I want to say that it is incredible to focus on God's love in the correct way. And more incredibly... It's a love for you. It's not just a love to escape judgment either. I mean, it's not based upon what you have done or what you haven't done either. It's based completely on God. So I want to say this. He just loves you. Deal with it. We don't, everybody, everybody who's followed Christ has asked that question, why do you love me? There's not a great answer other than to say, God's love. Hopefully it humbles us. Hopefully it causes us to praise God. Remember, it's because of his great love for us. That why, Ephesians says that. Paul says that in Ephesians. Romans 5.8. 
while we were still sinners. Christ demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Do you see all that God has done for us out of his love? I want to say this, though, that God is also just. The reason why Paul's defining love this way is to show us clearly that love does not mean accepting everything. Love rejoices in the truth. Either it's true or it's not. Either it's sin or it's not. Another essential character trait is God is just. And this leaves us with two options. One, we confess our sins and believe that Christ died for them, for our sins. That I, Corey Jones, living in 2019, my sins put Christ on the cross. And I don't just confess that so I don't get judged, but I also surrender and trust in God. In short, I commit to live for Him. Amen. Because I can't recognize sin rightly in my life and not live for Him. I can't see the damage that sin does and not live for Christ. The other option is not to trust God. So, to believe the lie of sin or even to see it and just do nothing about it. Listen, church, Christ's sacrifice was too costly. God is too honest and too steadfast to do what he's done in the cross and just be okay with rejecting him. It's not, he, he'll give you that option. That's your choice. But I want you to know that God does not want that for you. That's right. God wants you to be with him. He wants to restore, fix, and to love you. He can remove the stain of sin. Those of us who've committed sins that we're so ashamed of, God can remove that stain. There's no sin too great. Amen. He can free you from addiction. From hate, from anger, discord, strife. He can make a violent man peaceful and a liar honest. He can, overcome you, he can overcome your lust and heal your wounds no matter how deep and no matter how long they've festered. He is love. And he has shown us that way in his word. I hope you will praise God because God is love. Danny and the praise team comes. I'm going to pray for us, hopefully a prayer of just worship and praise to God for this character trait, for this immovable aspect of who God is. I hope as I pray that you guys will also turn in thanksgiving towards God for just being God, for just being love. Maybe some of you in here have realized what God's love really means for the first time, I would encourage you to say yes to that. To receive that. To believe what God says about your sin. And to believe that He loves you. If that's you, please, after I'm done praying, as Danny and the praise team plays, come find me up here to the front. I'd love to pray with you. 
or find somebody, a Sunday school teacher, something, someone. Don't leave here without talking about that, please. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God that is love. I hope that we understand what that really means, that your commandments and everything you've done throughout history has been motivated for your love for us, not because we deserve it, but because it's who you are. And we praise you for that. It's hard to understand, but it is nonetheless an essential character trait of, a, of you, the eternal, all-knowing, all-loving God. Please work in the hearts of all that are here today, Lord, to either reassure us, encourage us to know that we can rest in this love, or to challenge those who need to come to come forward and receive this love. We thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for that labor of love that he lived out, even to the point of death on a cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.